So we're looking at the Psalms this morning, <laughs> and we're looking at Psalm 4, um, kind of exploring the Psalms this term in the same way you might explore a jungle, so the themes <laughs> is fitting. I don't know if someone's made that joke already, maybe they have. Um, but the Psalms are brilliant, aren't they? And um, as a worship leader, um, they're so imp- important for me um, to be reading, to be reflecting on as, I guess, the worship book of the Bible. And um, it's so inspiring for me to read, particularly as I write and, and try and write fresh ways of explaining some of who God is and to put into words some of the experiences that we have in life in a way which we can engage with together. So um, the Psalms are such an important book. And actually, historically, they have always been the case. Um, the Psalms has always been a book where we, the church has gone to, which Hebrews have gone to, in order to help explain some of the, the challenges of life and also to explain some of who God's character is. And actually, um, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, started writing the message, primarily because he started to notice that uh, while the Psalms historically was used that way, that more recently that it stopped being read that way, that it stopped being the go-to book that people went to. And that, in fact, people started to switch off in his congregation whenever the Psalms are read, where before it was the go-to book to help explain and journey through some of life with God. In the present, it seemed to have lost some of that meaning. So he tr- translated the message primarily for that reason, um, in order to help bring back into our language, into our context, this book, which is so life-giving and helpful. And what I really like about the Psalms is actually sometimes when you're reading it, it can feel a little bit like the theology is questionable. <laughs> Does anyone else feel like they, they, Because people are so raw in the way that they express how they're feeling that King David sometimes will cry out to God. And sometimes the content of what he cries out is so real and, and so raw that it feels like, I'm not sure I entirely agree with this. <laughs> but there's something so refreshing about that, isn't there? And the way that the Psalms marry this kind of raw language with actually some real authority and truth about who God is. And so I'd love it if we are reflecting on Psalm 4 in that way, thinking about what is this in this Psalm which helps us to express some of how we're feeling and also to account for the way that God is. And the question I have for us to reflect on as we read Psalm 4 is, what do we do when we're waiting for God to answer us? when we're in the midst of conflict or when things don't seem to be going quite the way we expected um, or when things feel a bit out of our control, what do we do in that circumstance? And I think that Psalm 4 offers both practical and spiritual insight into how we journey through those things. And the funny thing is actually this week, it's been such a helpful thing for me to have wrestled with this psalm and walked through it. Um, there's been a number of things where I feel like um, right now things are outside of my control and um, this psalm is such a nice invitation to invite God into the midst of that. And in fact, there was a conversation I had to have with someone this week, um, which I knew was going to be a bit harder. And, um, and there's lots of ways that I was attempting to go about kind of thinking through how I'll have that conversation. And having this psalm at the front of my memory was so helpful to say, actually, for God to really work through this, I need him to be in the middle of it. Um, so I hope that it does the same for you this morning as you read it, that it helps. Whether you're in the midst of something like that or um, when it, that, something like that happens in future, that you might be able to use this psalm as a way of helping to walk through it. But why, why don't we read it together first and then have some reflect on it a little bit more. So Psalm chapter 4 says this, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. 
tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? That light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. So King David writes this psalm at a point where his son, Absalom, has betrayed him and turned people against him and actually killed one of his other sons as well. And his reputation is being pulled through the mud and is completely outside of his control. And so the question I have is, how does David respond? So if you look at verse 1, he says, and he begins by bringing it before God. And actually, the way that he does that, the way that he approaches God, sets up the rest of this psalm. It shapes his attitude towards the circumstances and influences the way that he chooses to respond. So what does he say? Firstly, he says, my righteous God. He leans on God's righteousness. He calls out the character of God. My God who brings justice. My God who vindicates. And in this act, he surrenders to God, to God's will, trusting that God knows best. He knows what's going on and can do a far better job at bringing some resolution. And then alongside that, the second thing that he says, really interestingly, is that he talks about mercy. And David relies on God's mercy. And so while he's calling out some of God's character and God's righteousness, he also acknowledges that there might be stuff in him which isn't right. He doesn't suggest that he's done everything right in these circumstances. And we know that he hasn't actually. He trusts that God is righteous, but he asks for mercy, for forgiveness for where he's had any part to play in the circumstances that he's facing. So he begins by firstly declaring the character of God. He knows who God is, but doing it with humility, acknowledging that actually there's some things in his own life where he hasn't lived up to what he should have. And I think that's a really helpful starting point, isn't it? I wonder how much do we follow that pattern when we approach God in the midst of challenges? To be confident in his character, but also to come with humility, asking for mercy. To trust that God is bigger than our circumstances, and at the same time to acknowledge that we need his mercy because we aren't faultless. We don't always get it right. And I think it's a brilliant combination. In fact, it grounds David's request. And before he even begins to pray more into the context of why he's facing this situation, um, and as we read the next verses, we see the way that it influences thinking, this first verse. And he does it cleverly, actually, because over the course of this psalm, he quite subtly addresses three different groups of people who would respond to these circumstances differently to the way that he chooses to. And so I want to have a look at just the, each of these groups and reflect on the ways that they respond in the midst of circumstances that are outside of their control. So looking at verses two and three, you start off with a group of people who are looking for a quick fix, quick fix that compromises on truth. So Absalom has turned some of David's men against him with the lure of power and the promise of success. And in the interest of getting what they want, they have betrayed David. And actually, this isn't a one-off occasion. Throughout the Old Testament, this is something, and this is actually something with the New Testament as well, which Paul had to deal with um, in the early church. Because as God's people, we face this long journey in the same direction. It's life to the full, but often there are points where it's hard, and often there are points where it's thankless. And sometimes, if someone floats a quick fix alternative in front of you, it can be tempting to try and take it, can't it? Um, 
So, for example, in the Old Testament, this, in this occasion, he's saying, come with me and you'll know what power is. You're not feeling that with David, but if you come with me, Absalom's saying, you'll really know what power is. And lots of occasions, the Israelites um, were tempted to worship a different God. It's like, worship God, but also worship this God over here, just in case you need his help too. When it comes to harvest time and you need rain. You know, it's like hedging their bets doing that. And for many of the New Testament believers, circumcision was their main temptation. So we have this option to know and trust in faith that we are God's people. Or here's this really physical, obvious sign that you are God's people, which has been presented in front of them. So do you see that temptation? The temptation to cut a corner maybe, to do something which compromises on what you know to be true in order to see something more physical which you think might bring resolution. Just compromise in this one area and you'll find success and affirmation you're looking for. But David highlights the real danger of that and so does Paul. Because in taking this path, his men are compromising on truth. They're believing a lie that a usurper can overthrow the king. And in the New Testament, those who choose to get circumcised compromise on their understanding of Jesus' work on the cross. It becomes Jesus and this other thing, Jesus and this physical sign. And as reflecting on this, I was thinking, what does this look like for us? And I'm sure probably none of us are feeling tempted to get circumcised. But I wonder if it has to do with security. We trust in God, but at the same time, we spread out our options a little. We hedge our bets just in case something falls apart, that at least we have this backup plan in place. Because, you know, God might not come through in the thing we're praying for. So we need something else, be that financial stability or relational stability, something else to receive security and affirmation. And while I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, it's bad to be wise with our resources and to steward finance as well, what can initially be a wise use of those things can quickly lead to compromising on truth. The truth of who God is and the truth of his character. Sometimes it can be as simple as believing it's our responsibility to resolve something which is really God's to begin with. And the danger is when we allow that to happen consistently, to always have a plan B, to always have our options hedged, so no matter what happens, we're okay. At the same time that we do that, I think we start to reduce and shrink our expectations of what God can do. In our desire for security, we can so easily squeeze out God and don't, not give him the space to be our security, when at the reality is he's the security that we need. And so this first group, they go after this quick fix, the lure of power, and they compromise on truth in the process. And then in verses four and five, you have the second group of people that David addresses. So these are the impulsive conflict resolvers, and that's the way I've called them. These are people that take resolution into their own hands. And so where the first group look elsewhere for security and compromise on truth in the midst of these challenges, this group reacts impulsively to the circumstances and try to resolve it themselves, leaving, often leaving a trail of destruction in their midst. And David addresses them in verse 4 when he says, tremble, or another translation says, be angry. So that in itself isn't wrong. But don't allow your anger to fuel your response. And I think he's already shown us why as he approaches God in verse 1. Because the moment that you react to that anger, the moment that you decide to be impuls impulsive with that anger and try and resolve it through that anger, 
what you do is you take justice into your own hands. You say, I am in the right, everyone else is in the wrong. I am the righteous God, they're the ones that need mercy. Do you, do you see this, the shift if you, if you view it like that? And this is a really helpful analogy, um, which people often do when they're going through marriage prep around um, the rhino and the hedgehog. Has anyone heard of that before? So it's, it's, it's brilliant. So um, we just walked through this, Lindsay and I, with a couple that got married last year. And um, so essentially it suggests that we all handle conflict differently. Um, but often we do it in one of two ways. Either you're a rhino, in which case when conflict arises, you just charge right through the middle of it. It doesn't matter how heated it gets, how much destruction there might be in the process, that you will just be like, I need to resolve this right now. I need to, it doesn't matter how angry I'm getting in the middle of this, this needs to happen now. And then you have the hedgehogs who, as soon as there's any signs of conflict, will retreat and will put up spikes and will get defensive and have no desire to be anywhere near the conflict. Um, so often in a marriage, you can end up having, being one of those two characters. I don't know, maybe you could think of which one you'd naturally tend towards. Um, and it's really helpful to know, actually, um, so that you can know how the other person responds as well in those situ situations. But in this context, um, the thing I want to say is actually both can be destructive because they both take the frustration of the situation, the anger that we feel, and react because of it. And I mean, it's quite hard not to. But David addresses this temptation, and he suggests two things. First, at the end of verse 4, he says, search your hearts. And then in verse 5, he says, offer sacrifices to God. So what is he saying in the verse 4? Search your hearts. So in the midst of the anger, be silent. Stop. Reflect on your heart attitude and think, what of this is reactive? What of this isn't fair? What of this is? But what doesn't fit the circumstances? And then crucially, second, David says, sacrifice to God. So worship God. Let God be God and invite him into the midst of it. So again, you see this twofold prayer from verse one coming back through again, don't you? With searching your hearts, we're asking for mercy as well. We're acknowledging that we're not blameless in this. And then when we trust that God is, when we worship God, we trust that he is still righteous, that still, he still carries this. He, he is the one that's active in bringing resolution. And so again, in the midst of this group who would seek to impossibly resolve the situation, David calls us to let God be the righteous God and to ask for mercy. So if you've got this first group who compromises on truth and the second group who impossibly try to resolve the situation, then this third group in verses 6 and 7 believe that the answer to their problem is to fill their life with stuff. It's subtle, but you can see it coming through. So these people for a long time are long for the time where grain and new wine abound. So they're longing for that time of harvest that they've experienced before, the place where they have everything they need in a huge amount. And these people look back at those moments and think, I remember how I felt at that point, and I want that. I want that security. I want that contentment. And they long for those times again in the midst of these circumstances. So to put it in our context, these are the people for whom retail therapy is always the answer. <laughs> Do you know? They remember how much joy that coat brought them last month. Like, oh, if I just get another coat, you know, that'll be me for this month. I'll feel great again. And it's a temporary feeling of joy. I mean, we know that. Um, but the reality is that it's still a temptation, isn't it? That can be an easy way of trying to resolve it. 
And uh, there's, a, there's a theologian called N.T. Wright um, who's written a number of works on, on the com and commentaries in the New Testament. And he, there's an interview where he's talking about a, a period in his life where things were pretty intense and kind of outside of his control. And um, he says that one of the, the ways he tried to cope with it was to go on holiday, which is another way we do it, isn't it? Like to escape, to try and kind of numb the fact that things are happening. But what happened was that every night on this holiday, everything caught up with him. All of the stress, all of the things that felt outside of his control. And he had nightmares the whole time he was on holiday. I don't know if you've ever felt that. I, I've sometimes felt that, where you can think that I just need to do this one thing to escape from these circumstances, to numb myself to them. And then at some point, they come flooding back, and you suddenly realize, actually, no, this isn't resolved at all. There's still, everything's still there. <laughs> this has just been a temporary relief. But it can be so easy to be tempted to feel like that is a solution. And actually, the more I've reflected on this psalm, the more I think that as David is addressing each of these three groups of people, the people who would seek to compromise, the people who would seek to be impulsive in the way they respond, or the people who would seek to numb themselves to the reality of the circumstances. And then in each of those occasions, I think David was identifying and distancing himself from three temptations that he was feeling in the midst of his circumstances. To, in the midst of disloyalty, return that to his men. To allow anger to fuel his response. And to seek to collect around himself all the wealth that he had gained. And to be honest, I actually think in some ways we all face those three temptations when we're in circumstances beyond our control too. If I'm honest, I could, I could be all three in one day or in one hour. So um, I'll give you an example. It's just a silly example. But say that, say that Lindsay and I are on the way to work and we have a disagreement about the way that I've loaded the dishwasher, which of course we'd never have disagreements on the way to work. <laughs> and never about anything like the dishwasher. So of course, over the course of the day, I could, I could be tempted to do different things in response to that because it's not resolved yet. We haven't talked about it more. The first thing I could do would be I could look for affirmation through other people. I could go to my colleagues at work and say, you know, I loaded the dishwasher like this. I think that was fine. Don't you think that was fine? It's like, oh, yes, that's fine. I think I would do like that too. And it's like, yeah, I was right. That's right. So I start to compromise my relationship with Lindsay by looking for affirmation elsewhere. The second thing I could do would be I could really hold on to the frustration of it. It's like, I can load the dishwasher however I feel like loading the dishwasher. <laughs> and allow that to fuel the conversation that we have at night. Or the third way that I might do it is I might get to lunchtime and say, well, do you know what? I think I deserve a really nice lunch because I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself. <laughs> so I'm going to go and buy myself this really nice lunch today to, as a bit of a pick-me-up. So obviously, this, that's a bit of a silly analogy, isn't it? But you can see how all of those three things could play out naturally in temptation, as temptations when we're in the midst of stuff that we can't control. And whether that's conflict or circumstances outside of our control, the invitation from this psalm is to trust God rather than to give airtime to these temptations. And actually, just to close, I think if we get this right, verse 8 gives us a glimpse of how it has an immediate impact on us. It says that we will know God's peace and that we will be able to sleep. And sleeping is no small thing when conflict's unresolved. I don't know if you, how you find that, when, but th when things feel unresolved, one of the hardest things I find is to sleep. It's the kind of thing that rolls around your head when you're trying to get to sleep, isn't it? But this sound gives us such a helpful practice in surrendering to God and acknowledging who he is and who we are. And actually, I think I'm going to start to use it more regularly as a way of helping me to manage situations which feel outside of my control. 
And I, I've written a bit of a prayer, which I'm going to use just to close. Um, but I think I'm going to start to use a bit more regularly um, as a way of helping me in those circumstances. So you're welcome to join me as well. But I'm, I'm just going to pray this to finish off. Well, why don't we pray together? So, my God, my righteous God, you know far better than I do. Would you answer my prayer and have mercy on me where I carry some of the blame? Let me not fall into the temptation of a quick fix which compromises on the truth of who you are or in any of my relationships. Let me not be tempted to impulsively try to resolve things which will only benefit me short term. And let me not be tempted to ignore what's going on by surrounding myself with stuff which will only bring momentary relief. Instead, in the midst of this, I trust in you. Whatever that might be for us, we trust in you. And we invite your peace as we wait for you to answer. <laughs>